This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, I'm Steve Sharetta, Senior Managing Editor at Knowledge at Wharton, and I'd like to welcome Alex Rees-Jones to this podcast. He's a Wharton Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions, and he's written an interesting study on personal tax manipulation, both legal and illegal. So, Alex, no one likes paying taxes, of course. Oh, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> sure. Um, so that aversion motivates us to do different things, including take ad- taking advantage of every single legal tax avoidance incentive that we can in many cases, um, such as the mortgage uh, interest deduction. But it turns out uh, that not as many people take full advantage of those uh, possible deductions as as you might think. And then the second thing is that there are those who are motivated to use illegal tax avoidance schemes, tax evasion, uh, to get around that tax bill. And that can cost the government up to $400 billion a year. So uh, one interesting aspect of all of this is the psychology of the taxpayer, which you look into in your paper. And uh, in your brief for the Penn Wharton Public Policy Initiative, you note that reducing the size of a loss means seems to be more motivating to most people than securing a gain of the same amount. Other things being equal, you would think there would be an equal motivation, uh, but that's not the case. So please give us a summary of your findings, um, and uh, and particularly on that unusual aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, when I started this project, uh, the key thing I wanted to do was test if loss aversion played out in tax contexts. And the, you know, the key finding is that that does seem to happen. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of background on that. Uh, So this term loss aversion refers to this very widely documented psychological bias uh, that people seem to treat outcomes differently if they're presented as a gain versus if they're presented as a loss but are otherwise equal. Uh, So this is a piece of something called prospect theory, which is a really prevalent uh, theory in behavioral economics. It played a major part in Daniel Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize, and it's basically a psychologically motivated theory of how people make decisions. So people hate to lose. Uh, they hate to lose, and it's it's a little more nuanced than that even. It's that if you think about the value of a marginal dollar, you care about a mar- marginal dollar more when it makes a loss smaller than when it makes a gain bigger. Hmm. But they also hate to lose. Um, so at some point during graduate school, I, I got really interested in trying to think through how that behavior would play out in tax contexts, and I thought there was a pretty strong intuition uh, that it would. Um, you know, and it could play out at a couple different stages, but the one that's most obvious to me is thinking about how people work through their annual tax bill. So uh, you know, as we all unfortunately know, around every April, we have to sit down and fill out our tax bill. Uh, you know, this is a long and complex exercise, but the bottom line of it is ultimately figuring out if one of two things is going to happen. The thing that happens to most people is you find out that your total tax bill for the year uh, is less than what you actually already paid through employer withholdings and things like that. So in a very literal sense, you're going to get a gain, you're going to fill out your tax return, send it in, and then they're going to send you back a check. Some people face a loss in the sense that they find out they actually didn't pay enough already and they're going to have to send a check to the IRS. So we have this very natural gain-loss framing. We're absolutely in the domain of prospect theory. Uh, and then the decision I'll be looking at is thinking about how people try to change that, the size of that gain or loss through all the things you can do as you fill out your tax form. So or how much energy they put into trying to change Exactly. It. Yeah. So one dimension is just how much effort you put in, mm-hmm. like looking for different credits or deductions you could claim. But there's also literal tax incentivized behaviors you can pursue, like putting money in a tax preferred retirement savings account. And then, of course, some people just do the, the obvious thing of cheating on their taxes mm-hmm. and deciding how much to do that. So let's just call all these things bundled together manipulation, uh, whether it's legal or illegal. And the thing I'm trying to think through is, you know, 
if you see the evidence of prospect theory in these manipulation decisions, do you see people do more of this manipulation when they face uh, a loss on tax day relative to a gain? And you know, the bottom line of the paper is if you look at uh, the IRS's tax records, and I'm looking at a panel going uh, across the 80s, uh, in the distribution of balance due to the people report, you see real telltale signs that people are manipulating their bill uh, in that way. So um, it, the psychology behind it is fascinating, of course, and, and, and the way people approach these things. But what are some of the practical implications that could be for the government, for individual taxpayers and so forth? Yeah. So, you know, there are, there are all these technical considerations in terms of how you'd want to model tax policy, although, of course, not many of your listeners are actually modeling tax policy all that often. I mean, the most practical thing, I think, is thinking about nudge interventions, uh, where lots of us in some capacity or another interact with people and care about whether or not they pursue or don't pursue some tax incentivized behavior. So, you know, employers might care about if their employees are putting money in a retirement savings account as part of their compensation package. We often care about trying to get people to donate to charity, things like that. These are all activities that have some tax incentive behind them. And the basic idea of this is that, you know, we're seeing some responsivity of these, uh, you know, these behaviors to gain-loss framing. So if you can control whether something is perceived as a gain or a loss, if I want you to take a certain tax incentive, I want to make sure you feel like it's making a loss smaller uh, as opposed to making a gain bigger. And, of course, there are some activities that are tax incentivized where we don't want you to respond to the incentives, like you face some incentives to try to cheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in cases where I'm looking at a group of people who I think particularly strongly face those incentives, um, you might want to make sure they're, they're thinking about their tax bill framed as a gain uh, to help minimize the degree to which they psychologically feel motivated to pursue that opportunity. So it's, it's so interesting. So the, take the same amount of money at stake and depending on how you, you, you frame a question or an argument or, or present something to someone in writing, whatever it is, um, they're more likely to respond – uh, a, a certain way than another way, and, and, and that's kind of predictable, right? And so uh, if, if you want them to take advantage of something like a, a charitable deduction because giving to charity is is a good thing, then you would present it one way. Uh, and if you wanted to, to avoid uh, some tax evasion, you present it another way. So get, use a couple of examples because I think this is like where the rubber hits the road with this. Yeah. Well, so to be clear, I, sh- I should point out, you know, what I – I don't have different framings in my study. In my study, all I'm doing is looking at the natural gain-loss framing that exists, although all sorts of other studies in different domains have studied your ability to change the perception of something as a gain or a loss. So if you want to think about what that implies about the tax setting, you could think about, you know, for example, uh, looking at a small business owner, and this is a, you know, a group of people who have the best chance of getting away with tax evasion relative to, say, someone like you or me who directly get a bill from, from uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and then the University of Pennsylvania tells the IRS they paid us, so if we lie, we'll get caught immediately. So I think your paper notes that uh, there's, uh, there, there's evidence to show that small businesses tend to uh, be involved in illegal tax evasion more than the average person for the reasons you're talking about. Exactly. The, the records are clear for yeah. one group. So trying to control incentives for those types of groups to go after this is a key thing you might do. And whenever you're interacting with them, when you're sending them uh, materials from the IRS uh, or interacting with them, not as the IRS, but some third-party organization, to the degree to which you can frame the taxes they pay, not as a loss relative to, say, not paying any taxes, but as a gain relative to what some other company like them might have paid or what they might have expected to pay, et cetera, the key prediction of this theory is that you should then expect them to cheat a little bit less. So, for example, so you're a small business person. Uh, 
let's say, you know, you're, you're in retail, you have a retail store of some kind. And so you're saying that if you gave them information that said, oh, of all the retailers in your zip code or your state or some, some, <laughs> some group, in, in, you know, with a similar kind of business, X percent try to evade taxes. I mean, how would that actually look in, in yes, practice? Sir. So I want to be clear, I don't have uh, that exact data, although right. that feels a lot like a lot of work of, say, uh, uh, Robert Cialdini on social proof, for example, uh, or trying to frame these kind of uh, perceptions of reference amounts across different studies. Uh, so yes, exactly. Uh, the combination of my results with this existing literature would suggest that exactly the type of thing you're suggesting uh, might be effective. So um, so when judged against their peers, well, here's the thing, like, I mean, there's a median there, right? So like half are above the cheating level and half are below it. So you'd only send it to the ones that were that were uh, above it or below it. How would that work? Because you'd have to know that, right? Yeah. Or, and, and if you want to use literal gain loss status, yeah. like I'm talking about uh-huh. here, after the fact, it's deterministic if a person is in one or the other. I can't lie to a person and say you face a literal loss when they actually face a gain. Right. But you can choose which groups to direct your efforts towards, for example, if you think, if you're trying to decide which people to go after to try to get them to give an extra dollar to charity, for example, mm-hmm. looking at people who are facing a tax loss might be a group of people who are particularly susceptible to marketing materials around tax season, for example. Well, the other thing that was really interesting, I thought was a really cool idea was that um, charitable deductions, of course, are based on the calendar year because our taxes are based on the calendar year. But you, what you're saying is if the deadline was closer to the time when people were filing taxes and then that message came in and said, oh, by the way, you can lower your tax uh, bill if you uh, you know give to charity. Uh, and that if that came like in April sometime or March, whenever people are preparing their taxes, that it's likely to have a bigger impact and, and that could nudge people in the direction you're talking exactly, about. Exactly. Yeah. There is a little bit uh, of a disconnect in timing for a number of tax provisions, charitable giving being one, mm-hmm. where uh, the moment where you think a person might be most motivated to find these manipulation opportunities is, let's say, on April 14th as they frantically try to beat the right. deadline. Right. Um, but for many rules, what you're documenting on April 14th is what you did in the previous calendar year. Mm-hmm. And if I did something today, I wouldn't claim it as a tax reduction today. I would claim it next April. Uh-huh. Um, and so when possible, if you think there are activities uh, you know, holding all other considerations equal, you know, where people are going to be particularly motivated to pursue the activity while they're going through their tax return. And if you want them to pursue their activity, which is you know, presumably what we think about charitable giving, right. you want to make it so that they can act on that and have it immediately right. influence their tax bill. So if I make a donation now, I'm going to see that immediately in, in a lower bill that I'm writing to the IRS right now. Exactly. Yeah. And some motives like that influence yeah. why we allow people uh, to put money in some types of tax-preferred retirement savings you know, up till April. I just want to go back to that small business example for a second. Like what, what would the wording actually say? So let's say you've targeted someone who's more likely to, uh, to, to, to cheat on their tax, right? That's who. That's who you would be targeting the message to. What What would it actually say? How would it? Just as an idea for folks to get a, a clear idea of what this looks like in practice. So I think I mean the the settings where I have wording actually worked out are more for the tax incentives than the tax disincentives. Okay. I mean for uh, for small businesses, the bottom line is just I think. Uh, as much as possible, they don't view you know their reference point as paying zero taxes mm-hmm. at all oh, uh, and view any tax as a loss. Uh, I mean, the cases where we as third parties, not as the IRS, mm-hmm. have the most chance to act on these nudge opportunities are cases where we're trying to 
you know, run a charitable giving drive or get our employees to put money in a retirement savings account when you can point out, right. uh, look, you know, you're about to send and you, you can only send this to the, say, quarter of employees who actually face a loss. But say, you know, around this time of year, you're about to send $1,000 to the IRS. Um, but note that if you immediately gave this money to charity, right. based on your marginal tax rate, you would actually send this right. lesser amount and present the numbers for them and let them make the decision themselves. You know, do I really want to give mm-hmm. a certain amount of money to the IRS versus do I want to give it to charity? Do I want to put it in my retirement savings right. account, et cetera? So just on the small business thing, because I, I just find this whole idea fascinating. So if, if someone – so I mean maybe people think, you know, most of my peers are probably not – paying very much in tax. And I don't want to be the one out there paying more, or I just don't want to pay more, period. Uh, but if if they got a note saying, oh, people in your peer group paid between, you know, you give some range or something, then you're saying that that would, their prime motivation wouldn't be to pay zero tax. Their prime motivation would be maybe to be something closer to their peers. Is that it? Potentially, yeah. There, there's a, a very interesting paper by uh, Ricardo Perez Trulia and, and co-authors uh, that was looking at nudge type interventions to collect late uh, taxes uh, from taxpayers where these are people who, you know, it's already determined that they, they owe the IRS money and they haven't paid yet. Uh, and they sent out peer information and they found in some context that they had these backlash effects where they said, you know, here's information on all these other people who are not paying their taxes. And normally that those types of peer information provision interventions are meant to persuade you to do it. But uh, it seems like a lot of people got those letters and said, man, uh, all sorts of people aren't paying their taxes. Now I definitely shouldn't. Uh, and they had negative effects that were not intended uh, in, in some cases. That's not sure. always the case, but sure, that's sure, the sure. flavor of the result yeah, we're talking about. Yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah, no, it gives a, a real flavor of how – of the psychology of it, how yeah. people think about it, which isn't always rational. <laughs> so uh, also one another issue is um, – you note that more than three quarters of taxpayers actually have too much money withheld, either because they see it as I don't know why they see it as a forced savings, or they don't want to get a surprise bill at the end, so they just kind of overdo it, just so they don't have that bad news in in April or something like that. Uh, but you're you're saying that's not a great way to handle things, and why don't you talk about that? It's another point in the paper that was interesting. Yeah, so there's a so it's been observed long before me that it's not great for taxpayers that so many are overwithheld. And, you know, the reason is, is that it's, it's costly for them. Uh, so here's the, the way to think about it. If, if I'm doing my withholding perfectly, let's say if I did nothing differently, I would have a balance due of zero when I fill out my tax return next year. But then today in August, I save or I, I withhold an extra $50. Well, then in April when I fill out my tax return, I'll get $50 back. So what I did was I gave the IRS a $50 loan with a 0% interest rate. Mm-hmm. And that's a bad deal for me because normally when I give people $50, I get interest on it. Right. Uh, and so I've let the IRS collect the interest instead of Even me. more important if it's a few thousand dollars. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's been you know, appreciated for a while that the, the way to think about this cost of prevalent overwithholding is the fact that a lot of taxpayers are losing out on these interest costs. And there's been some very nice work by people such as Damone Jones um, you know, calculating how much that is. And I, the way that I kind of join this debate is by saying, well, there's actually another thing that overwithholding is doing. It's influencing psychologically people's incentives to manipulate their tax bill in some ways that are probably good, in some ways that are probably bad. So it's uh, it's probably good that gain framing is making it so people like to cheat less or seek out opportunities to cheat less. It's not clear if, if we actually want to dissuade people from pursuing tax incentivized behaviors, and it's probably doing that too. 
Um, so that a bottom line that I get to in the paper is that if you actually calculate up, you know, the dollar amount of how much less manipulation you see uh, due to having so many people in the game domain, it's of comparable quantitative importance to the dollar amount of kind of foregone interest that we were already talking about. So wait, could you restate that? Because that's a little Sorry. bit yeah, so the, complicated. Just when we're thinking about the social cost of having so much overwithholding, mm -hmm. the thing we were normally thinking about was these foregone interest payments that right. people were giving to the IRS. And I'm saying if you calculate up uh, you know, the amount of money that's moving around just from less manipulation occurring, mm -hmm. that amount of money is kind of on comparable orders of magnitude to these interest payments that we were previously focused on. I see. And of course, from the government point of view, you wouldn't necessarily want to encourage people to, yeah, from the, to change that behavior yeah. because it's kind of, it's free money for them. Yeah, so we already knew uh, very well that it's great for the government if people yeah. give them too much money. And now it's, now we have another reason why that's even more true than before. Did anything surprise you as you conducted this research? Well, the thing that I, th I think is most surprising, uh, even to me, although I was hoping to find this, expecting to find it, is uh, you know, the, the size of the effect that I ended up documenting. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you know, the key thing I was trying to do technically in the paper was find a way to estimate the amount of extra manipulation you'd face in the lost domain compared to the gain domain. The estimate I get to is that on average, people seem to uh, reduce their tax bill by $34 more if they're in the lost domain compared to the gain domain. So $34 by itself is not necessarily a big deal. And when you say comp uh, compared to a, a lost domain versus a gain yeah, domain, so you mean exactly? I'm imagining you, know, you if you faced, uh, if you had to pay the IRS $100 on tax day versus if you got a $100 refund. Okay. And uh, the implication of the estimates is uh, you would reduce your tax bill overall for the year by $34 more under the loss situation than the gain situation. Mm -hmm. And so $34 is not a big deal. $34, when you start multiplying it by the number of taxpayers we have, becomes a big deal pretty quickly. Uh, so a way to kind of get it quantifying that, one thing you can do is say, well, how much, uh, how much would it change total tax collection if everyone manipulated as much as people in the lost domain? Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer I get to in the paper is that that would reduce ta total tax collection by close to $4 billion, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which um, is plenty of money. Uh, and particularly when you're thinking about this literature on psychological effects on prospect theory, mm -hmm. you know, often uh, when we're studying psychological effects, we're studying numbers much smaller than that. You rarely see uh, direct demonstrations of the psychology playing out at that kind of scale. Right. So interesting. Um, so And... and how exactly does your research differ from what else has been done in this area? Yeah, so there, there's a long line of research thinking through the implications of prospect theory for taxation. Uh, I would characterize it in a couple different bins. So there's a bunch of work that's just pure works of theory. Um, and so my, you know, my contribution is primarily empirical. I'm trying to think through how to actually measure this in field data. Uh, on the same point, among existing empirical estimates where we're trying to actually see it play out, most of that evidence is from small-scale experiments or surveys where I you know, take people and put them into some economic game or survey question that would reveal if they think about things in a loss-averse way, but I'm not actually looking at their tax data necessarily. Um, so that leaves open the question of if it actually translates through to what they you know, really do on tax day. There are a couple studies that do directly inform our uh, uh, you know, this type of question where we look at specific types of credits or deductions and they show some evidence consistent with people pursuing them more when they face a loss than a gain. Uh, now, this is kind of where I jump in. You know, the key thing is if your goal was to think about the total aggregate consequences of prospect theory, it doesn't work to just look at one item at a time because there are just so many things you can do to manipulate your tax bill. There's so many credits and so many deductions and so many ways you can cheat. Mm -hmm. 
So you'll really understate the importance of loss aversion or prospect theory if I look at one thing at a time. The approach that I build in the paper is one where anything people are doing to manipulate will get bundled together and calculated to get to that $34 mm -hmm. number. Um, yeah, so the, the key way I differ is in being able to provide this estimate of the total quantitative impact of this psychology, which uh, you know these papers have not done in the past. Okay. So um, were you – well, actually, I was going to ask if – because this was done for the Wharton – Penn Wharton Public Policy Institute, which is basically operating out of Washington and is there to partly provide data and give advice to, to uh, public officials down there, Congress, for example. And so if – you were talking to someone from Congress. What would you say? Here's a couple things that might make better public policy if we did these things. What would you say to that? Well, so the you know this starts to get a little technical, uh, but I think the the largest implications of this research and most of the research I do on psychology and taxation is not necessarily on uh, you know how to do nudges and things like that, and how to present things to the public. Uh, but on how to actually do things on the back end when you're modeling the consequences of tax reforms, uh, of policy changes, rather than operating fully with the, the typical economic model where we assume that people are fully informed about the tax system, perfectly rational, et cetera, and using that to forecast their response. If we can build in some structure about how we know people come to understand the tax system, what biases we know play out, and build that into our forecasting apparatus, uh, I think that helps us you know, figure out and better forecast what's going to happen after we change taxes, which types of tax changes we should expect to be beneficial versus not, and so on. Is that, is that like saying uh, build in some things that take into account more behavioral economics? Exactly, yeah. So yes. we're trying to, you know, there's a lot of people who care a lot and do very serious work. We're trying to think about how people understand their taxes and to forecast what they're going to do any given year. You know, mm -hmm. this is, uh, there are branches of government that focus on this a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing I think, you know, the, the time is ripe for building more ideas for behavioral economics into this exercise mm -hmm. and use what we know from psychology to really put a bit of structure on this problem mm -hmm. uh, to improve our forecasting accuracy. Uh, okay. So and, and are you taking this forward to, to extend this piece of research uh, further or are you going to look in separate areas now? Uh, I'm working on very conceptually related work across a couple of domains that's just broadly on the topic of building more psychology into tax policy analysis. Uh, so it's mostly not on prospect theory at this point, uh, but it is following up on this idea that we can use the structural predictions uh, of existing psychological models to better do tax policy. For example, if you're thinking about you know, how people come to understand how their complicated tax bracket structures work and how they optimize against that, mm -hmm. building in some heuristics and biases into that type of framework, thinking about how people come to attend or not to sales taxes, uh, things of this flavor. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for coming in and chatting with us. And uh, if you like what you hear and would like more knowledge, please join us at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.